Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Solar Review Podcast. I'm Tom Miller, Marketing Director at Baywa RE Solar Systems and Editor of Solar Review Magazine. And today we're featuring a discussion between Baywa RE Solar Systems CEO Boaz Soifer and Dr. Charlie Gay. Charlie's credentials are extensive. He's on the external advisory board at Sandia National Laboratories. He's also the former director of the U.S. Department of Energy's Solar Energy Technology Office, the former director of NREL, and serves on the board of SolPad, to name a few of his past and current activities. Charlie's been plugged into the renewable energy world for the last 50 years, and we're delighted to have him joining Boaz on the podcast today. A brief note that my internet dropped out just as we were getting started, so that's why it's mostly a conversation between Boaz and Charlie, but I did get a chance to ask Charlie my first question, so that's what we'll lead off with here, and then I'll drop out for the rest of the conversation and leave it to Boaz and Charlie to carry on. Thanks to both of them for taking the time, and I hope you enjoy this far-reaching conversation. Thank you for joining us, Charlie. Thanks a lot, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always fun to chat with Boaz, too. (laughs) Yeah, great to have Boaz as well today. And Charlie, we asked you on the show uh, to talk about disaggregation, resilience, the modern grid, how to accelerate our clean energy economy and more. And I have a few questions to toss your way, but I also want to keep the conversation open and let Boaz pick your brain as well. But I thought I'd start with a comment you made on our Earth Day town hall a few months ago. And how for you, 2030 is the new 2050 and and how we need to accelerate our adoption of of clean energy. And I'm wondering if you saw the report from UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy and Grid Lab that that says that a 90% uh, clean energy grid is possible by 2035. Uh, And if you have any thoughts on that. Yes, I I was very pleased to see that. Ryan Visser, uh, Galen Barbos, the, the team at Lawrence Berkeley Lab uh, stays very close to what's happening on the ground here in the U.S. at a local city, county, state level as well, and connects the dots between what's happening at the local level and larger scale policies. So while I was uh, serving as director at the, uh, the DOE Solar Office, Ryan and his team continue to add a lot of depth to the work that they're doing. And each year we could count on them to give a very insightful and detailed report on the adoption of solar. It was particularly relevant when uh, permitting and other soft costs seemed like intractable issues. And they did a lot to identify local areas where the authorities having jurisdiction uh, had either automated or made it easier uh, to structure a standardized way of getting permits. And that depth and experience has uh, continued to grow as time goes by. And Ryan and the team have done a, a nice job up to the level as well of looking at the independent system operators across the U.S. and tracking Uh, the so-called duck curve for each of the um, half dozen um, areas that are uh, independent of each other uh, for managing transmission systems and how solar and wind are playing into the uh, overall landscape. Um, And increasingly, just today, for example, with Duke Energy, Duke and Dominion announcing that they were selling the 
uh, East Coast Pipeline to Berkshire Hathaway, more and more utilities are finding that they can uh, look at the bite-sized chunks of capability that renewables represent and count on uh, renewables in an increasing way for meeting our energy needs. Thanks, Charlie. I'm, I'm wondering what steps you think, you know, since, since our constituency is largely solar contractors, what, what should solar contractors be thinking about um, as the, the horizon for mainstream solar adoption gets closer? One of the areas, uh, and, and I'm not an expert here, Boaz, you're, you and the uh, team and the contractors that are part of your distributor network are in touch with the pulse of what's happening uh, day in and day out. But broadly speaking, I think that uh, the adoption of electric vehicles will uh, see increasing um, opportunity, both because it's far less expensive to manufacture an electric vehicle than an internal combustion engine vehicle, and because the uh, price of uh, cells and batteries is dropping as fast as it is. So installers being able to integrate storage and bi-directional inverters, uh, the use of the car battery itself will, I think, in, play an increasing role, um, even if it's just a representative of a small amount of energy that's stored. That small amount of energy can go a long way towards uh, minimizing uh, demand charges uh, so the, the utilities coming out of the pandemic, I think a lot of them are going to have uh, cash flow issues because customers have um, been cut some slack on paying their bills. And historically, um, that cash flow hasn't been as much of a crunch as I think it's uh, going to be. So being able to integrate uh, residential storage and solar with uh, increasing connectivity, the data that we have about where the power is and when it's used. Maybe uh, the, the links that uh, Baywa has with LG, not just in uh, solar panels, but perhaps in storage, represents uh, a dimension of opportunity that uh, if you're not already exploring, I'm sure, uh, is going to be on the radar at some point here. Uh, I, I always enjoy looking at uh, the Baywa website and following the podcast because the partners that you have, not just on the installer side, but on the supply chain side, um, have been very well matched to where I think uh, opportunities for growth are taking place. With the examples of uh, Sunrun, uh, sun power, looking at aggregating capacity uh, across a large number of their customers for the independent system operators. What we're seeing is all of those small pieces coming together and the value that can be represented by distributed generation and storage uh, is going to make a big difference to the resilience of our grid uh, and potentially uh, can be monetized uh, for the homeowner as well. We'll have to, it's where following the work at Lawrence Berkeley Labs um, is of 
most interest to me because they do so much to understand the, the holistic collection of pieces here and what values can come depending on um, local circumstances, um, utility hosting capacity, um, and the rate of adoption of solar and, and uh, electrification and transportation. You, you covered a lot in that answer, Charlie. Um, thank you. It, it just brings up a lot more questions for me. Um, <laughs> uh, one is, um, you and I spoke, I think about four or five years ago, about kind of the, the big trends that are impacting renewables um, in the coming years. And the first phase of that that you referred to then was customer acquisition, including financing, that that had to get solved in order for the mainstreaming um, to move forward. And I'm thinking that as the offering um, that, a, that a solar contractor can, can provide or that a company like Sunrun, as you mentioned, can provide with distributed energy resources, um, as that offering expands, um, there are more opportunities to acquire customers in different ways. And even as, as you just suggested, utilities can become customers or uh, managing demand charges can, can become a value proposition. Do you see the customer acquisition phase as coming to an end? Or, you know, since we see soft costs still being pretty high, do you think we have a lot of ground yet to cover? Uh, I, I think we have a long way to go. And it's... Um why I like what you uh, and, the, and the team at Baywa do, Boaz, that the uh, importance of uh, relationships drives a lot of the opportunities that we have because they're local, they're uh, culturally unique in many cases. Uh, and um, among the aggregation opportunities that I've been giving a lot of thought to has been community solar, sort of the in-between scale uh, landscape here, where we want to do more for our uh, for for um, homeowners and uh, those who don't have roof space to put solar. Uh, oftentimes, representative of low moderate income communities. Uh, one of the areas where there might be some uh, traction is in opportunity zones, uh, which were created um, early in the Trump administration. Uh, they typically overlay on the results of census data for low moderate income areas that those areas might be large enough to host um, three, maybe five megawatt scale deployment of solar and storage uh, and um, be of value to the utilities efforts to better serve low moderate income communities and that the development located on opportunity zone land may be a place for financing uh, to get some traction um, so local financing, uh, more and more banks in a local area, uh, being familiar with the community um, are more likely than in the past to be open to discussing financing at the uh, homeowner level. 
And the next level of financing, uh, I think, might find a landscape here where some of the economies of scale that come from deployment on a site that could host, as I say, maybe three megawatts of PV plus storage would then represent the ability to overlay the community solar initiatives with the opportunity zone um, landscape. It's, uh, I've been going online, you can easily zoom in on maps of local areas across the entire US, see where the um, opportunity zones are located, the aggregation of a larger scale and measured in megawatts rather than in kilowatts, uh, I think might attract uh, new types of investors, especially those who are looking for tax shelter opportunities in a way, um, while there may be extension opportunities for investment tax credit or deferral out over some time, new sources of capital uh, may see a, a good return on investment for these kind of community solar plays. And the installer base that uh, Baywa has essentially represents that contact or that connection point between local areas and where investors may look to come into solar who haven't previously been involved in investing in solar. A few weeks ago, I spoke with uh, Jesse Pichel at Roth mm -hmm. Capital, uh, who um, is very in, in excited and enthusiastic about the potential for these community solar projects, which have double or potentially maybe three times the return of investing in a 100 megawatt scale power plant. Um, so there may be a way here that we help low moderate income communities take advantage of opportunity zone uh, areas and combine that with a rapid decrease uh, or continuing decrease in the cost of solar uh, PV and storage. Uh, I'm, I'm confused about um, something you said at the end there, Charlie, about how these um, community projects could uh, have a return for the investor at two or three times the rate of a large scale plant. What causes that um, accelerated return? Essentially, it's a higher uh, price on the power purchase agreement. And so uh, the yeah. value of that power in that area, NREL uh, uh, has some nice maps that show demand charge as well as energy charge across utilities in the US. And you could imagine overlaying the map of the utilities and their price structure with a map of opportunity zones and uh, a map of sunlight availability uh, and sort of sort along the lines of the lowest hanging fruit first. And I think that standardization of a building block. One of the things we did at uh, DOE was to work with the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. Mm -hmm. NRECA covers, I don't know, two thirds, maybe 70% of America's land because people, there's the 
flying across the U.S. If we ever get back to looking out the window flying across the U.S., <laughs> there's a lot of time spent flying over empty land. So they, the co-ops are actually the most cooperative of utilities uh, that I've ever encountered. The learning in one co-op is shared with another. We standardized a one megawatt building block for uh, NRE, at NRECA that was then replicated across a large number of NRECA's um, territories with the cost of storage coming down so rapidly and the ability to do more in rural areas by having some storage along with wind or solar, I think might also represent a connection point. And it might be um, NRECA isn't looking to um, stand up in each co-op a engineering firm to look at what the best way to deploy solar in that co-op's territory might be, but it is, I think, perhaps a possibility for the Baywa installers who have the skills of sizing, understanding um, the way to integrate storage in with PV, may be able to also scale portions of uh, the services that are offered because that standardization, uh, it might be a, a, a ripe opportunity here. As I say, I want to put the caveat on here. I, I'm not as close to the, where the rubber meets the road as you and the installers are every day. But from a distance, those look like some of the kinds of um, themes that may be worth exploring. It, it's really interesting uh, because we've been talking internally, actually, the, the social justice movement that's been emerging lately has amplified our internal conversation about serving low and middle income communities, which are often um, people of color, marginalized communities, etc. Yeah. And this, this seed of energy democracy kind of emerging in, in the promise of renewable energy and I, I don't know um, what it would take, right, to, to really empower people to make beneficial energy choices um, that, that are beneficial for them, beneficial for the communities that they live in, um, as opposed to, you know, a lot of the energy choices that are made today are, are beneficial for the corporations that, um, that supply energy or transmit energy. Do you have thoughts about whether energy democracy is starting to look like more than some obscure concept? Are, are we making progress on that front? I guess the optimist in me wants to see that, Boaz. <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, growing up on a farm that got its electricity during the, uh, the 1930s as part of the NRECA expansion of bringing electricity to rural farms. Uh, the kind of independence that comes with being able to make your own energy decisions and being self-reliant uh, with energy, I, I think gets reinforced by our experience in the pandemic, by 
the experience of the, the follow-on of Black Lives Matter and people taking to the streets. As, as my hair has grown longer, it reminds me of <laughs> taking to the streets in the, uh, I guess it was 1967 or so while I was at, uh, in college and stopping traffic on a freeway <laughs> near, near our campus. Uh, that taking action uh, seems to uh, have some traction here that um, maybe we can help reinforce by uh, some sort of um, educational awareness process, perhaps, but uh, maybe that underlying that is how do we standardize or create a product package that gives uh, low uh, mid-income communities a choice um, themselves to decide for themselves. And it's, it's why I think the installers that are part of the Baywon network are probably have their finger on the pulse of where they live and what the communities are thinking about. If we can help um, configure so a menu of choices that they can uh, use as part of outreach, uh, so much as possible online. Uh, these mapping examples I was speaking to you don't have to leave your desk in order to be able to uh, see where those opportunities might be. Maybe um, there's connection as well on the commercial side where commercial stores, uh, the work that uh, we're uh, looking at with SoulPad um, is to look at um, load control, the demand management tools that can be used by commercial accounts and they basically, uh, there are many chain stores, uh, chain, uh, franchise restaurants all across the U.S. where um, the ability just to shave the peak uh, of that demand um, is a, a part of that low-hanging fruit opportunity. And as parts of those communities, uh, those stores represent um, a point of contact. Maybe there's uh, an angle here um, through some of the uh, presence of mind that uh, larger uh, commercial accounts. We see it on the high end with uh, Microsoft saying that or Apple uh, referencing going green and making corporate commitments. We see it at the uh, Berkshire Hathaway level of Warren Buffett uh, taking ownership of pipeline infrastructure. Large corporates understand the opportunities that go with renewables. Um, individual homeowners, um, I think, are well aware now of their ability to become self-reliant. But that large sort of middle landscape from financing to um, uh, community solar, I think, represents uh, where there may be growth. Well, I'm excited about it. Um, I think it's it's easy to be excited about it. It's another thing to achieve it, but uh, <laughs> we're trying to figure out how to put some some resource in that direction. Uh, and our town hall last week was, um, you know, touched on that topic in, in some interesting ways. Thinking of having a, a diverse product offering as a solar contractor in order to address the diversity in a community and that you know those those mindsets go hand in hand so that was interesting yeah, yeah. 
Um, I want to go back to something that you said about resilience a little while ago, and you also talked about resilience on Earth Day, and you talked about it in relation to um, disaggregation. And I think you meant something specific by that, but I also have really enjoyed the idea of taking that as a general statement, that disaggregation is, is a systems thinking way of approaching resilience. So disaggregation of um, the, the energy ecosystem is one thing, but disaggregation of how we resource projects in an organization also has elements of resilience. And I was wondering if you had more of a philosophy on that that you'd be willing to share. Sure. I wish I could articulate a philosophy on it. <laughs> but, uh, the, the elements here at a very high level, uh, going back to how did we get an electric grid to begin with? And Con Edison um, essentially given the monopoly rights in New York, building a coal burning power plant with the exclusivity of uh, knowing that customers would be captive to that power plant which has led us to um, a, a large number of the investor-owned utilities regulated by public utility commissions. As time goes by and individuals can generate and store their own electricity, it's a little bit analogous to the evolution from needing Ma Bell to bring wires to communicate with each other by telephone to being able to stand alone with cellular phones. And to, there are certain parallels to cost reduction that comes with competition and customer choice. There's the ability today, uh, if a cell tower goes down, we worry about the folks in that um, line of sight area, but it's a small chunk of land. And similarly, Having our own electricity generated at a residential level or a community level, we can uh, help assure that self-reliance occurs in a, that smaller bite-sized chunk. And having those smaller pieces means that we're more resilient broadly um, across the country when the situation was large central power plants uh, were the source of electricity for everyone. Uh, that central power plant represented a vulnerability for a large territory. Now we can get our own electricity in these smaller areas. So if something happens to the backbone of the transmission system, more and more, it will be possible to operate microgrids, a smaller scale network, maybe composed of homes, or maybe a network composed of these community solar uh, power islands that exist. Those are, uh, represent greater resilience because they're smaller blocks that can stand on their own. Then uh, let's say worrying about the last time we had a blackout across uh, a large fraction of the U.S. because a tree knocked down a transmission line or um, something occurred along that transmission backbone. 
most of the attention on resilience at the Department of Energy looks at microgrids and looks at ways to integrate microgrids together to um, build out a complete network, but at most only risk a smaller bite-sized chunk being vulnerable to a cyber attack, for example, or even a a geomagnetic pulse or an electromagnetic pulse, whatever kind of physical threat there might also happen to be. We can be more resilient by integrating the small pieces and we can integrate the pieces with the telecommunications network and even increasingly as 5G networks are adopted um, just in order to enable autonomous vehicles to stand the road without collisions because there's low latency, there's fast response, the ability to have an artificial intelligence network that keeps all of the pieces running without need for um, people to intervene because the computer networks can operate so much faster. I I think that the use of the, the characterization disaggregation, what I was talking about there referenced We're not so dependent upon a a few large-scale networks, uh, but can rely on those smaller elements working well together, uh, enabling uh, what's called black start. If, If a portion of the grid does go down, the neighboring areas can uh, merge back together to restore the grid in a sort of self-healing way. They, I suppose if there's a philosophy there, it's that Um, operating at the edges, just like the internet allows us to operate at the edges with each other, rather than needing to go through a central hub. Mm. Um, And we can learn from each other out at the edges without going through central hub. Uh, Oftentimes that might be a government agency or uh, the like, uh, but it, it empowers individuals. So the piece that I like the most is uh, the uh, empowerment of the individuals that uh, resonates well for the social justice movement and the things that we're seeing people uh, wanting to be empowered, ready to be empowered, long overdue to be empowered, uh, can come with um, what we do day in and day out by bringing our own generating capability and our storage solution. So you've led many organizations, Charlie, public sector, private sector, board member, CEO, you're an engineer. Um, what do you see changing in, in how we think about leadership to, to take a turn here? Seeing the, the kind of trend that you're talking about with disaggregation and resilience and, you know, thinking of, to, to not use buzzwords, but thinking of how small parts can work together more effectively than a large part can serve. Are you seeing that as kind of a, a, a macro change in, in society and in, in organizational leadership? I think so. When I was in school, uh, I, I happened to major in chemistry because an engineering program wasn't offered <laughs> where I was going to school. And, I only primarily studied chemistry. 
Uh, As time went by, and I listened to my faculty advisors uh, encourage me to uh, take more liberal arts classes and uh, become more familiar with the rest of the world. What what I've gotten to see uh, these days, I, I connect up with students at my alma mater, uh, University of California at Riverside, as well as a uh, number of students that I got to know and faculty at um, Stanford and at Cal Berkeley while I was uh, based in the Bay Area. I'm very excited. I work at UC Riverside with, uh, there's a, a Native American student group, for example, that um, has entrepreneurs who are looking at ways to create businesses that support uh, their home communities, that uh, in, empower those communities. And the students today are getting a far sort of a, a longer DNA code that uh, can be tapped into that have cultural elements, have uh, technology elements, business elements, finance elements, and are the uh, hotbed of startups. Students creating these businesses, and there are uh, increasingly a wide variety of uh, incubators across the U.S. and the national laboratories that the Department of Energy manages have increasingly opened their resources, their labs, and their uh, brain trusts to entrepreneurs for being able to try integrating new ideas and technology with the existing uh, framework of systems, but bringing solutions at the local level from a much wider menu of choices. Uh, so the, uh, and I, just the, the, the enthusiasm students bring is always contagious uh, and um, inspiring uh, so that folks like me can mentor and say, well, in this similar situation in the past, um, maybe this didn't work or that didn't work. But given that things have changed and are evolving very rapidly, technology evolving very rapidly, changes the equation, changes the opportunity. And just like being energy self-reliant, students starting their businesses to be self-reliant is a a hotbed of innovation, of of taking pieces from a, a wide landscape, a wide panorama of possibilities and bringing them into play in new ways is where, uh, for me, the action is and where I think just reflected in how many business incubators span the U.S. today compared to five years ago is where a lot of opportunity emerges. And business incubators came about in, I think, maybe the early 70s when uh, the steel industry moved, left America and left uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey and went offshore. Cities like Pittsburgh created the first incubators. Uh, Steel workers could go uh, to an incubator, learn about starting, what, what were the things necessary for starting a new business? and have support systems around them, um, legal contracting support or 
relations to um, banks in the area in order to begin that uh, new business. Now that um, idea has uh, spread uh, all across the U.S. Uh, and uh, what I see happening, or what I, at least I've had a chance to participate in, has been this um, a lot of structure applied to uh, framing innovation. So the, the spirit of trying something new and different isn't quenched by needing to have a lot of overhead structure. Uh, never particularly worked well with overhead of any sort anyway. But that's where I uh, think we can make some of these larger visions happen where empowering uh, for purposes of social justice, seizing that power and being able to do something the way you want to see it done with like-minded folks who are from the uh, same uh, culture or the same physical area. That's where uh, I think uh, our future lies. It's funny, my, my first job in the solar industry uh, was with Positive Energy, uh, a solar contractor based here in Santa Fe, and that job was in an incubator. Uh, the, the environment of the incubator um, was really interesting also because there were always new businesses coming and going that we could exchange ideas with and that the incubator would put on workshops uh, where, you know, each individual company might be working on its own strategy, but seeing how other companies in other industries who were also being incubated uh, really made us, I think, a lot smarter about uh, how we thought about our challenges and uh, markets and, you know, even, even mundane things like hiring plans and, and financial statements. So, so, so that makes me curious, Charlie, um, about what you're excited about doing yourself for the next few years. What, what are you thinking your teeth into? Oh, um, it covers a pretty broad landscape. I, um, I'm uh, consulting, uh, as Tom mentioned, uh, uh, sit on an advisory board for Sandia National Lab. But what I spend a lot of my time doing ranges from um, helping a new uh, photovoltaic manufacturing startup in Brazil is looking to bring new technology, flexible, thin photovoltaics to market, to a group in uh, Saudi Arabia that's looking to integrate uh, PV with agriculture, greenhouses, uh, uh, farming, the combination of egg and PV coming from a farm myself has always been something I've been interested in. Uh, indoor farming, of course, has got uh, uh, a lot of momentum behind it in, in various areas, especially urban areas. Looking at enabling um, U.S. manufacturing to come back in the PV industry, exploring with a company called uh, uh, Violet Power, establishing gigawatt scale manufacturing in Eastern Washington and in Moses Lake near the location of REC Silicon, which is a high purity silicon producer. So to a certain extent, going back to my early solar days of building a large scale manufacturing plant uh, here in Southern California as part of Arco Solar, scaling 
Learning from the scaling experiences, um, sold equipment to while I was at Applied Materials into China, bringing that self-reliant capability back home and having a large enough manufacturing scale because we now have a large enough menu, uh, market to absorb a product. Maybe this year, it depends on who you ask, but something in the ballpark of 12, 15 gigawatts of PV, um, being installed across the US. That's a large enough in market that we could support having all the way upstream self-reliant capabilities and everything from making our own silicon to making our own uh, ingot cells, modules, uh, continuing to get cost out of uh, manufacturing of modules. There's opportunities there that um, are sort of my comfort zone because <laughs> I've been there and I haven't forgotten all of the of the, uh, the learning experiences that one has in starting something without knowing exactly uh, what they're doing or what range of things could go wrong. Uh, to looking at a, a team in uh, Italy called uh, Regal Grid that is uh, formed by folks that uh, spun out as Landau and the Solar Edge founders. Part of that uh, management team started uh, Regal Grid, which enables um, residential and commercial buildings to uh, share power in neighborhoods, being able to use uh, what's called a smart node control unit, a SNOKU. So there's an interface uh, that, in a sense, uh, sits above a home inverter that can talk to that home inverter and your neighbor's home inverter or in a local network, and you can share power with each other. Mm. If I go away on holiday, uh, you can access my storage, for example, or my PV generation. Europe has uh, been ahead of us in um, exploring prosumer possibilities. So some of those um, uh, challenges of how to take that uh, learning, it, it essentially using a cloud server for maintaining the databases of information of uh, usage profiles, as well as forecasted uh, energy availability and better balance out the grid at a neighborhood level. So there's a number of those themes that I'm, looking at. I've been, uh, I left DOE um, seven months ago. Um, I'm sure I've got another round or maybe two in, in my body to <laughs> run a business or at least be an active part of a growing business and uh, pick something where I seem to get the best traction to scale up from there. Awesome. Well, I, I can't wait to hear what comes out of some of those ideas. I'm especially intrigued by the, the kind of peer-to-peer um, energy sharing network that you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So um, we're going to start to wrap up, Charlie. Is there anything um, that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? No, I'm just delighted to uh, uh, stay connected with you, Boaz. As I said, the, the culture that you've created at Baywa, uh, I love. Uh, it's, um, you're a great listener. Uh, <laughs> I hope I haven't yammered on too much here today, but uh, the, the, uh, I think you and I exchanged some email notes or something uh, related to music. I can't quite remember the context, but I thought 
there's a man whose holistic connections all the way from technology to music. You're the kind of guy that I'd enjoy talking with and working with, and hopefully that kind of an opportunity will will come along here. Well, I'm I'm grateful for your words, Charlie. You're a, a brilliant guy and a humble, kind guy. And uh, I think I'm incredibly lucky and Baywa is incredibly lucky to have you in our network and in our community. So thank you for your leadership and um, thank you for spending time with us today. My pleasure.